What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Hi, and welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM. Today, we're going to be talking about insurance regulation, which is an incredibly exciting topic. As you know, David, we're actually going to be talking with the president of the American College, George Nichols. Now, why are we talking to George Nichols about insurance regulation? Well, actually, George was a former insurance commissioner at Kentucky. He was also the former president of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, an expert on this topic and someone that I talk to when I want to get some insight into regulation. David, you were just reading about this topic this morning. Some advisors had some questions about how insurance companies are regulated, how safe they are. What, what were you reading about this morning? Well, George, I'm, I'm going to tee up here. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. But someone called it a, a fiduciary breach to recommend an annuity company given the single entity risk. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. And I would be very disappointed if I read that article this morning. I'd be upset. As a former regulator, insurance companies are safe. They've been safe for years. The example I think I use all the time is think about what happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. We did not have a crisis in the life insurance industry or the insurance industry as a whole. Other than AIG, and it was their financial lending side of it that was in trouble, not the insurance company. So you think about probably the biggest financial risk that we had back in 2008, the state insurance regulatory system actually was able to bring the insurance industry through that basically unscathed. So now let's get to this issue of the question, really, are they safe and, and this fiduciary issue? I think that anyone would say that actually has little understanding or knowledge. The reason that most insurance companies are regulated at the state level is one, states believe you ought to get close to the consumer. But regulation is really focused on two things, and that is there's a market side, which is licensing, market conduct activities of it. And then the second side of this is solvency. I think that in 2008, the regulatory structure showed the value of its uh, structure across states of multiple eyes on an insurance company because you have to be licensed. You have to operate by the rules of every state. So every state's looking at you, not one single regulator looking at you. So when people think of the fiduciary risk associated with this single risk associated, I actually would put that more on the federal side than I put it on the state side, because you do have multiple eyes viewing an insurance company, both from solvency and financial oversight and financial condition. And you have them looking at what they're doing from a market conduct perspective with their consumers. Now, George, that's a really interesting perspective that because you've got 50 sets of eyes, you can actually do a more effective job of providing oversight over the industry. And one of the criticisms that I've heard of state regulation is that insurance companies can pick and choose regulators that are more favorable. So they'll house themselves in a state where regulation is more favorable. But you're saying the opposite. You're saying that because they tend to focus on protecting consumers, they tend to compete amongst each other to provide more effective oversight. And, and also on the federal level, what you see is that in some cases, industry can capture a regulator. I mean, the USDA is, is perhaps one of the more classic examples of that. Do you think that that state regulatory structure is 
consistent enough to prevent that regulatory arbitrage? First of all, I think that your point about arbitrage is, is a correct one. A company can't pick the state at which it chooses to do business in that may allow it to do other things that it can't do in other states. But the fact is, it can only do it in that state. It can't do it in New York. It can't be in California or in Texas. So that's the first thing. I think one of the areas that is the most consistency of state insurance regulation is around solvency, whether or not a company is safe and sound. And there is the the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which you mentioned that I was president of. That is probably their greatest strength of consistency of regulatory oversight on the solvency side. What happens is a state is allowed to create permitted practices, i.e. things that it will allow insurance company to do. But again, those are within that state and they're publicized. So everybody knows what you've allowed them to do and other regulators have an opportunity to respond to that. But the basic underlying structure of how a company's solvency oversight is being done, that is consistent across most states because the association created an accreditation program. And in order for you to be accredited, the number one priority is is around your solvency regulation. So I feel like that even though, yeah, you have that arbitrage that could happen, it really isn't happening because one, it has to be public for all the other states to know about it, two, for a state to be accredited, and all the states are accredited, I think, other than maybe New York, that they have to comply with the rules of the way solvency is done. So you have a level of consistency, and all that information comes in to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and it is disseminated back out to its members of all the states. So I think that there is the right structure there. Now, add on top of that, the fact that as a state regulator, I can go into more detail about an insurer that's licensed in my state. And so when you think about those levels of oversight, I feel like that, yes, the multiple eyes and even the single structure of the NESC allows us to say that insurance companies are pretty well regulated and there's appropriate oversight from a solvency perspective, which I'll tell you that where I mentioned earlier that you have market conduct issues and you have solvency. In my mind, the number one consumer protection is making sure a company is financially solvent to pay the claim when it's due. And that is why you will see if you really looked into the state oversight, they've spent so much time focused on the solvency piece of this, and they've done pretty well in terms of how that oversight's done. And again, look at the number of companies that have failed. You go back to the 80s, there was a lot. But In the last 20, 30 years, nothing compared to banking, nothing compared to securities industry, nothing compared to investment space. When you think of insurance companies going under, they just don't because of that broad oversight that's there for the regulatory perspective. Two things, you know, first I have to point out, Michael said the 50 regulators is also regulators in Washington, D.C. in the five territories. So it's really closer to 56, I think. (laughs) That is 50. You're correct. That's okay. That's okay, Michael. Let's not, let's not, you know, my question for you though, George, like, why do you think so many advisors harp on this, this idea of single entity risk? I just don't think that it's there. I think that, you know, the, the assets of the insurance company, the state guarantee associations, the kind of implicit backstop of the industry is actually almost unheralded in terms of what else you see out there. But, but so often we hear this, like, where does that come from? What are your thoughts when you hear that? Yeah, uh, I think it's an excellent point, David. And I and I will say I agree with everything that you said in terms of, to me, even though 
one could say it's inefficient because it is 56. The fact is its record is actually pretty strong compared to its federal counterparts. You know, I, I did government affairs for New York Life Insurance Company for 13 years, and I found that there were a number of people who one only wanted to deal with one source. If I have to deal with multiple sources, I automatically say it's bad. So if I only have one federal regulator, I, I can focus all my energy right there versus I don't have to like spread myself out thin. So I actually think that the people who are making these comments, you know, they want to be able to use the political cloud and the power and all the other things that I can bring to bear on one person. But when I got to spread that out and then expose myself differently and have other people coming to me, sure, I wouldn't like that system if that's what I was ultimately trying to accomplish. Now, I'll also tell you this. I, I think we should be very open and fair. There are some regulators in the states that probably need to up their game. And, you know, they probably aren't the best. But when it comes to the things that are most important, the state system actually does work. And I just think that you just got a group of people that say, I don't want the hassle of having to deal with multiple people. I'd rather have one and then I can find out what the weak spot is there. I go after that and I get what I want. That's a good place to take a break. We'll be right back. Give your clients the retirement security they need with our retirement income certified professional designation. Visit theamericancollege.edu slash RICP to learn more. Learn how a goal-based approach redefines 21st century investment with our Wealth Management Certified Professional designation. Bring your value to a new level at theamericancollege.edu slash WMCP. Welcome back. Let's continue where we left off. Where my question is more geared towards is, is the advisors that somehow like suggest that, that insurers are risky because there's just one insurance. They don't understand the dynamics behind the stake and all that. I mean, I, I, to me, like th that, I mean, I, that to me is, is one of the at least biggest impediments that people say when they say, well, I won't use an annuity. Oh, because it's just one insurance company. One of the things that I always struggled with, and, and actually I chaired the state guarantee fund system nationally, and you're actually not allowed to advertise or promote it. So I can't go in and see you and say, oh, by the way, I just want you to know that you really are dealing with someone who's safe and sound because we have a guarantee fund system behind us. You're actually not allowed to really promote it. They don't want you to because of the way it's structured, where if I were dealing with a banking product, I say, oh, and I'll, we are FDIC approved. And so you really do have companies and advisors going out and they're not talking about the safety net of the insurance industry, but there are reasons for that. And, and it's, you know, there's a moral issue around that that has always been a part of the debate. You know, so you take the multiple sources, then you, you know, you, you take, I can't even talk to you about the safety and soundness structure. Most people don't understand it. They don't know to talk about, you know, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners and the accreditation process and, and all of the solvency oversight. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting at a disadvantage if I'm in that space and believe in those products where the people who only just are, you know, tangential involved in it, they're not going to know all those details to be able, one, to create the own comfort level within themselves, but also articulate that to their client. Well, we can talk about it, right? Because we're on a podcast. And we don't That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, so I, I think there's two things here that are important to discuss. And the first is, how is capital regulated? In other words, how do the regulators ensure that when an insurance company has claim obligations, even if they're in the more distant future, that they're not taking too much risk with their general account portfolio 
and putting the policyholders potentially at risk of not being able to get those claims. Also, talk to me about these state guarantee associations, because one of the points that David made is that a lot of advisors are concerned about the idiosyncratic risk of a single insurance company going out of business. But it's not really idiosyncratic risk when you have a bunch of other insurance companies serving as a backstop who are motivated to make sure that no policyholders lose money because then it makes it more difficult on the aggregate to sell an insurance product. So a couple of things. First on on the capital issue. First of all, let's just talk about reserving. Insurance companies complain today all the time that the reserve levels are too high. And that is reserving mean that for all the amount of risk that I have on the books, there's a certain amount of reserves, just like banks do, that I have to put up. And I can't, I can't use those reserves. I can invest them, but those reserves are committed to what my risk or liabilities are on the books in terms of the products I sell. You know, they're required to hold a certain amount of reserve. Then on the investment side, there's called uh, the investment basket. And so they're only allowed to invest those reserves that are for protection and future claims. They're only allowed to invest in certain things. And so there are limits on that as well in a basket approach. So when you think about how regulators are doing it, they've got a set of rules. And when you go back to this accreditation, there are national rules. So it's not like, you know, I get to let you do a little bit more in my state than in others. From an accreditation standpoint, there's an investment basket and there are reserving and capital rules that you have to abide by to be accredited. And so everybody knows what those are. Those rules are set by the states. And again, everybody operates under the same set of rules. Now, if for some reason there's some portion that Again, I mentioned permitted practices, which is probably to me the one loophole of state regulation. But again, at least it's public. You know what that rule is and you know how someone's been allowed to do it. That becomes one of the issues. But I have found in my time, and and I still do a lot of work with the state regulators given my past, I haven't found any state that's ever allowed a permitted practice that anyone's ever complained and says, that could actually put a company at risk. So I don't think you ever see that. I think there are enough set of rules for reserving capital requirements and the investment basket that I think, you just look at the history, we haven't had failures. Then the guarantee fund system. The thing that people don't understand about the guarantee fund is like, if you're thinking about the FDIC, well, you go to the federal government and they write a check out of the general treasury or their fund, their checking account, that they've been having banks pay fees. In the state guarantee fund system, the law states that if there's an insolvency or a liquidation of a life insurance company, then what's going to happen is the state guarantee fund system, there's a national body that comes together and they evaluate and say how many policyholders are in each state. And then they look at the number of companies in each one of those states and each one of those states will write a check for an amount up to a limit for them that will cover the majority of the liability for each person. So just think about if there was a company had a bunch of annuity clients out there and they went in liquidation, then all the states that had those policyholders would determine how many people are there, what is the amount. There are limits, just like in the FDIC, it's $250,000. In most states, it's somewhere between $100,000 and $300,000 of coverage that you would be paid through all of the insurance companies putting money into a pot to cover your expenses. 
And I came to the college in 2018. So I'd say that the last time I was involved in this was 2016, 2017. And we were still operating were that in the majority of cases of any liquidation of a life insurance company, we were paying close to 95% on the value of whatever the policy is. That's pretty good. And again, that's the way the system is. So any company that goes under, the insurance industry collectively is going to pool its money and it's going to cover those expenses, again, up to a limit, just like you have at the FDIC. But I want to say in most of those states, it's around $253,000. I think that's an important point, though. There, It is up to a certain limit. So there are incentives for consumers to pay attention to credit quality of insurance companies, especially if they have a claim that's larger than one of those limits, potentially, either a life insurance policy, an annuity policy, whatever. Paying some attention to credit quality is important from the perspective of a consumer. I think what often happens among insurance companies is that there is an incentive to take greater risk with your general account portfolio to promise consumers more than maybe you're capable of delivering, especially if your promises are in the future and if the executive gets their bonus based on revenue this year. If you can promise to give away a lot when the next CEO is in his office, then, then that <laughs> you're going to promise as much as you possibly can to maximize your bonus this year. And that's where the regulator has to step in and say, yes. you know, there are these limits. And because other insurance companies are on the hook, they then have an incentive to make sure the regulators are doing their job to make sure that they're not going to have to pay some of those obligations. Michael, I almost think that you sound like a regulator because that's exactly how it works. I mean, the, the fact is, I, you know, uh, when you think about, and th this actually happened, fortunately it happened before I became the insurance commissioner in Kentucky, but there was a large life insurer in Kentucky. Uh, I'm sure David will would know the name if I said it. I won't. That was offering some crazy, crazy guarantees that there was no way they were ever going to hit. The state took the company over. The company ultimately went in liquidation. Now, the state was hesitant. If you look at the, if you look at the record, the, the state was hesitant about taking it over. It actually was other states that pulled the license of the company that then forced Kentucky, which was the domicile regulator, to act. So just imagine, every company has to be licensed in a state. You don't get one license in Kentucky and then you're licensed everywhere. You apply. That's now, again, another thing people complain about the inefficiencies. But the fact is, if Kentucky doesn't act, New York could act. Indiana could act. And all they have to do is pull the license, and that company can no longer do business in their state. That is going to get the attention of the domiciliary regulator if they have not acted. So to me, yes, I will admit there were inefficiencies. But just think about these checks and balances when things are happening where that, you know, that, that protection is there. And then add on top of that, I'm your competitor. I sure am going to be telling my regulator, I want you to act because this is unfair. So think about the number of companies that lose business to companies that are given these outrageous, you know, projections. So, I mean, that, that's, you're hurting my business today. And then you turn around and you're making bad decisions today that are actually going to affect me in the future because I'm going to be the one that's going to cover the liability for you if you go under. So that, again, I just think those checks and balances are actually allowed for the life insurance industry to, you know, be fairly well regulated and going forward in the marketplace. So it sounds like 
that you know the next time anyone out there is questioning the you know, the safety of an insurance company, it's important to kind of question their motives because from this conversation, it sounds like insurance companies are highly regulated and relatively safe. And when someone questions that assumption, it, it might suggest that there's something else going on there. David, I think that was an excellent summary. And I appreciate you sharing that coming from your perspective. Thank you, George, for joining us on the show. I think we learned a lot today. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, George. This is Wealth Managed. See you all later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 